Active members in the Canadian Armed Forces do not have the necessary equipment required to complete missions. The Commissioner of Correctional Services Canada refutes Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino's claim that he didn't know about Paul Bernardo's transfer to a medium security prison. If an election were held tomorrow, Pierre Polyev's Conservatives would win. Hello Canada, it's Wednesday, July 5th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Cosman Georgia. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. In a recent report published by the Department of National Defense, or DND, 35% of active Canadian Armed Forces members interviewed reported not having the necessary equipment required to complete missions. Three unclassified audits have exposed serious gaps and weaknesses in the readiness of the Canadian military across the land, sea, air, and space domains. Auditors found that on all fronts, the military faced significant challenges in meeting the current and future needs of the Canadian Armed Forces, as well as fulfilling Canada's broader commitments to NATO and other allies. Additionally, the lack of personal equipment for individual units was cited as a chief concern by the report. In June, reports emerged that Canadian soldiers deployed on international missions in Latvia were forced to pay for their own equipment out of pocket. On top of a lack of equipment, Canada's military was found to be limited in its ability to transport and sustain the stock it has in its inventory, often having to rely on allies to meet their demands. The audit also evaluated Canada's Ready Air and Space Forces program, concluding that the Royal Canadian Air Force's ability to meet its readiness requirements was, quote, compromised. When it comes to responding to international threats, auditors found that the Ready Joint and Combined Forces program was ill-equipped and struggling to meet NATO commitments. Cosman, this is obviously a very damaging report, but also not that surprising. We've known there's been huge problems and gaps within the military for some time now, especially with that report coming out last summer that soldiers deployed on missions overseas are actually being forced to pay for equipment out of pocket. So very concerning. It's kind of hard to take Canada's military seriously when you read stuff like this and also just embarrassing on an international scale, I would say. Yeah, I definitely think this report crystallizes a lot of what we've heard from service members directly. You know, we know that they're under-equipped. We know that our ships are undermanned. The military is having a recruitment crisis. They can't get enough people to meet the obligations we have on our missions, both domestically and abroad. So it's quite startling to see it all laid out there. You know, I've talked directly to uh, veterans and members of the military who tell me, you know, we're going abroad on missions, let's say in in Jamaica, and our guys are less equipped than the uh, Jamaican military who we supply uh, via, you know, international equipments with, with our own equipment. So We've seen this time and time again. We are giving more than we are are receiving ourselves and being able to properly equip our forces to be combat ready and mission ready. To your point that we're giving more than we have ourselves, you know, that really begs the question, why are we sending so much funding and so much of our equipment to Ukraine when we can't even staff our own officers? It is morally bankrupt that we would ask these officers to go overseas, even if it is just for training, 
and not give them the equipment that they need to do their job properly and to be able to protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Canada for a while has been a foremost NATO partner. We've engaged in a lot of uh, high profile missions. We've had people in Europe. We've had people in Asia and we've had people in the Middle East. Right. We we were in Afghanistan. We had to pull out of there and uh, presumably leave our stuff behind. So it really goes to show like how much further back we're falling, how many steps back we've taken. Uh, can we even deploy to future missions uh, should the call uh, be raised? I I'm not entirely sure. You know, we're not meeting our NATO obligations of 2% defense spending. And there's been no promise or steps to, to get to that point. The Commissioner of Correctional Services Canada, Anne Kelly, insists that Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino's office has been properly informed of Paul Bernardo's transfer to a medium security prison, refuting the minister's claim that he knew nothing of the matter. Access to information documents obtained by the Canadian press reveals that Deputy Minister of Public Safety Sean Tupper and Associate Deputy Minister Tricia Gades were sent an email three days before Bernardo was set to be transferred an email that Tupper acknowledged and even replied to. This comes after Mendicino's weeks-long denial that he had any knowledge of Bernardo's transfer to a medium security facility before it had happened. Mendicino's office previously told the press that his staff had known about the transfer before it had happened, but kept the minister and the victim's families in the dark. His ministry was notified of Bernardo's transfer three months before the planned move, then three days ahead of it actually taking place. Bernardo is serving a life sentence for the kidnapping, sexual abuse, and murders of 15-year-old Kristen French and 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey in the early 1990s. He also admitted to sexually assaulting 14 other women and was convicted of manslaughter in the death of Tammy Homolka, who died after being drugged and sexually assaulted. So there are a lot of plot holes in Mendicino's story. Um, and now we have the top, you know, prison correctional services official saying, actually, we informed the minister's office directly. And the evidence here is uh, two deputy ministers having received uh, contact from correctional services. So if the minister knew about the transfer, why didn't he stop it? You know, he claimed the transfer was shocking and incomprehensible in subsequent comments. But here his office receives a notification twice, you know, months before and then just days before it happens and he does nothing. Definitely the minister's narrative is starting to unravel here. He said he wasn't aware of Bernardo's transfer until it happened. It would appear time and time again, based on the evidence that we have, that that's not the case. The Liberal government often relies on their senior staff to fall on their sword and claim that they were not informed of a decision. Obviously, there's no reason the public safety minister shouldn't have been informed of this decision. And if he's saying that his staff didn't tell him, well, then it's time for him to re-examine his staff because he shouldn't have senior staff in those positions who aren't going to relay such major decisions like this. And you're absolutely right. It seems very likely that he knew. And the question is, why didn't he stop it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's placed the blame on his underlings. But the question 
if it if it is truly the case, has he fired anybody? And from my knowledge, there has been no confirmation from the minister's office that anybody was punished. So it just it just really leaves a lot of questions left to be answered. And Mendicino, you know, has made so many mistakes over the past while, right? Like he, as as being in charge of the public safety profile, he was also caught. Uh, off guard, so to speak, with all this China stuff, with the China election interference. And he's pushed the, the sort of the same narrative. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media and among political observers of a coming cabinet shuffle to get some new faces into the Trudeau government. Do you think Mendicino is potentially up for being moved at least out of the public safety profile? I think it's a definite consideration. I think the liberals stand by their people far too long, even when it's proved that they are not capable of doing the job that's been given to them. And Mendicino was certainly, I would say, the most prominent person right now who was really just incapable of handling the role that he's been given and all the decisions that comes with it. So I think it'd be reasonable for the government to shuffle him into an easier portfolio you know, I suspect he'll hold on to his cabinet position. They rarely actually punish people, but maybe he'll be given something less high profile, less serious. It would be long overdue, honestly. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev's popularity continues to surge. In fact, the Conservatives would form Canada's next government if there were an election tomorrow, according to the latest polling from Ipsos. The poll, which surveyed 1,000 decided voters on June 19 to 20 on Global News' behalf, revealed Polyev is gaining momentum just as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh have waning support. Among decided voters, the Conservatives polled at 37%, up four points since a previous poll was administered in February, and over the Liberals 32%, down a point from four months earlier. Meanwhile, the NDP slid by a couple of points to 16%. By region, the Ipsos poll reported the Conservatives enjoy strong support in Western Canada, while the Liberals garnered the lion's share of their support among eastern provinces. The Conservatives have stalwart support among decided voters in Alberta at 58%, followed by Saskatchewan and Manitoba with 43%. So some really strong numbers for Polyev's people here, Cosman. I'm not super surprised to see that there's a lot of growing frustration and resentment with the Trudeau Liberals right now, as evidenced by the fact that anytime Trudeau goes out in public, you know, he's booed and yelled at. I have seen some interesting commentary online that Polyev has given himself a new look to appeal to women voters more often, that being that he's taken off his glasses and is wearing makeup. I hadn't really considered that maybe that was a new look. I did think it was interesting he wasn't wearing his glasses. I don't know. What's your take? Do you think this is his bid to appeal to more women voters? Well, I wouldn't read into it too much. You know, people are so obsessed with appearances and there could be entirely different reasons uh, behind Poilyev's uh, decision not to wear glasses. It could be uh, an aesthetic thing, but uh, just speaking about the poll itself, I think it's important to add the disclaimer that this always happens before an election, like a year or, or even longer before, but we, we always see the conservatives kind of gain ground on the liberals, and then it usually comes becomes more narrow as we enter into uh, an election period. Just looking at the poll numbers myself, though, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, the considerable support they have in British Columbia here, which is a province that is governed by the NDP, 
you know, it's usually more liberal leaning, more progressive. And, and here the conservatives are polling at 37 percent. Now, that not, might not be a huge uh, determinant in, a, in an election, but it does go to show some of the dynamics happening here with the conservatives picking up some of that, you know, working class blue collar union sentiment from the NDP and the liberals. So I do definitely think there are some changing dynamics at play in these polls, and it will be interesting to see how they uh, evolve into the next year. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.